0: Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's Word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. 55. No, 55. 55 is the number... Today. 55 is the number of people in the United States who suffer with hyperthymesia, also known as highly superior autobiographical memory. These people spend an excessive amount of time thinking about their past and display extraordinary ability to recall specific events. Alexandra Wolf is one of the 55. In an interview with National Public Radio, she describes how she remembers every detail of a mundane activity like driving the target for groceries that occurred more than 10 years ago. She remembers what she wore and ate every day for the last decade. She remembers if the fan in the bedroom was running on this date last year. For her, memory is almost like time travel, where she relives the past in concrete detail. Sometimes, this extraordinary ability is an advantage, but at other times, many other times, it's a curse. Another interviewee says he remembers all the wrongs done against him. And all the wrongs he has committed, demonstrating, as the NPR story states, that we need to forget as much as we need to remember. We need to forget as much as we need to remember. Or, as Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Today, we're going to unpack the fifth beatitude about mercy. Before we do, two words of introduction, one an observation, one a reminder. The observation is this, as we now hit the fifth beatitude, it's a turn. The first four beatitudes were all about our relationship with God. They were vertical. And inward and in fo- focus about how the human heart connects with God. Here we pivot, and now we turn outward and horizontal, and we get to see Jesus' heart for the world and how he wants us to neighbor every person who comes our way. So before we move into the horizontal and to neighboring and with mercy, I thought it'd be good for us one more time to reflect on the first four Beatitudes. What we'd like to do is read this statement together that summarizes and capsulizes the first four and then pause for 30 seconds just to sit in them one more time. Would you read this with me together? We are utterly helpless before God. We mourn the sin in our world and in ourselves. We are not as strong as we think we are. So every hour we put God at the center of our lives by hungering and thirsting for his verdicts and his mission. Connected to God, we turn and we go into our neighborhoods, our work, our communities. And we see the world now and connect to the world as Jesus wants us to. Before we do that, a rem- the reminder is this we must always keep in front of us with these Beatitudes that the first word is blessed. So, I want to remind us again what that means. Blessed does not mean lucky. It does not mean happy. To be blessed, to flourish, means that we are in the best possible position, not circumstances. Blessing has little to do with circumstances. But we are in the best possible position to receive from God These three things. Approval. Approval means God's verdicts. You understand, right? It's so hard to keep this in front of us, so hard to believe this, but you understand that the only opinion of you that counts is God's. And you have it. You have his approval. He's welcomed you into his family. You are his daughter and his son. It's the only verdict on you that ultimately matters. Second, what it means to be blessed is you have God's goodness. In Luke chapter six, Jesus says, You get the best from the Father when he gives you the greatest gift. And do you know what the greatest gift is? His spirit. Christ in you. Having that working in you to develop the Christ character enables you to go out into the world in on mission to demonstrate his love and witness the most amazing per- person who's ever lived, Jesus Christ. So having the Holy Spirit in you is God's goodness in you. So you have his approval, you have his goodness, the Spirit, and lastly, you have the promise of God flowing into your life. That's the resurrection. You know, right, that even on your worst day, and we would all probably define our worst day as the day we die. It's an upgrade. You have the promise of God, his resurrection, eternity with him, you have it now. So what does it mean to flourish? How can we be blessed even though we're poor, mourning, meek, and thirsty? How can we flourish? We can flourish because we know now we have God's approval, God's uh, promise, and God's goodness now. That's what it means to be blessed. And so we go with mercy to our world. So. Our structure here on in, so you can keep following, is uh, let's talk about what is mercy. Let's define it. What does it mean to be merciful? Then we're going to see a picture. Right in the middle of the sermon, our scripture reading is going to be a picture of Jesus showing mercy. What does it mean? What does it look like? And then finally, how do we do it? We, Waterstone, how do we become a community of mercy? Sound good? All right, just making sure you're awake on a cold morning. (laughs) Mercy is a coin minted on both sides. On the one side, mercy is compassion with action. Mercy goes beyond compassion to action. It always starts with a feeling, with pity, with compassion. But you and I both know that while that's a good feeling and a good thing, and it's usually the starting point, Pity in and of itself has never helped anyone until it moves to action. So mercy is compassion that moves to action. But I would add one more word to that. It's unexpected action. Unexpected first because the one showing mercy, he's under no obligation to do so. She's under no expectation that she should show mercy. And then the one receiving the mercy doesn't deserve it. They've earned the bad consequences that have come into their life. So it's unexpected. It's surprising. Surprising who's giving it, surprising that the one is receiving it. It's unexpected. Now, that's all very abstract. What does mercy look like? Mercy looks like turning your homework assignment in a day late. And the teacher receiving it, but not only receiving it, not docking your grade. That's mercy. What does mercy look like? Mercy looks like rolling through a stop sign and seeing red lights behind you. And the police officer comes up, roll down your window and says, I'm going to let you off with a warning today. That's mercy. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You know what real mercy is? It's when that happens to you in Morrison, Colorado, where they write tickets to pay their salaries. Mercy is a warning in Morrison. How many know what I'm talking about? Yeah. (laughs) Mercy, unexpected kindness. Mercy, oh, I would call it love, is when you're up all night with a sick child. That's love. That's mercy. Mercy. But do you know what mercy is? The unexpected kindness is when you show the same care to a neighbor's kid who egged your house on Halloween. That's mercy. Unexpected kindness. Years ago, during the war in Iraq, Charles Colson wrote a blog and he shared the story of a United States medical team at a compound there in Iraq trying to save the lives of two Iraqi insurgents who had just tried to blow up the compound with bombs. One of them was going to make it. They've saved his life. The other insurgent would not make it unless he received 30 pints of blood. So, A word went out through the compound, and within minutes, American soldiers were lining up to donate blood. Well, there was a reporter in the compound doing stories, heard about this, and went to interview one of the soldiers standing in line to give blood. He was a battle-hardened soldier named Brian. She asked him, why are you giving blood? Don't you know that they just tried to blow up the compound? Don't you know that's your enemy and you're giving your blood to an enemy? And the soldier said, a human life is a human life. Not only is that exceptional theology, that is mercy, unexpected kindness. So the top side of the coin is compassion that moves to action. That's a deed of deliverance that's unexpected kindness. The other side of the coin, though, is this idea that mercy enters the situation when a person who has you know, made poor choices and messed up their lives and gets into a rough situation when that person still receives help from another person. It has the idea of forgiveness. Mercy moves beyond judgment, they earned this, this is what they deserve, moves beyond judgment to forgiveness. Mercy means when someone hurts you What it means for you to show mercy to them is that you not only say, okay, you know, I hope the consequences are mitigated, but you still stay in the situation enough that you ask this question, what is best for you? Now, hear me clearly. Most often when someone hurts you, that relationship will never be the same Probably should never be the same. It doesn't even mean you stay you know, fully engaged. But it means, mercy, that you're still asking the question, what is best for you? It usually means some kind of tough love. It usually means you helping them absorb the consequences and choices that they've made. Again, it doesn't pretend that there's no sin. It doesn't pretend that nothing's happened, but you still stay engaged enough, this is mercy, that you're willing to ask, but what would help them? That's mercy. Let me say it this way. Mercy means that we are willing to respond to a person's need rather than Then react to their sin. If I could put it in a sentence and take this picture, mercy means this. Mercy looks beyond a person's fault and sees their need. Now, let's see that in action. I'm gonna invite Ginny to come up and read a passage for us from the Gospel of Luke. And this is mercy in action. This is Jesus demonstrating what mercy looks like. Take a deep breath, receive this Jesus story.
1: A reading from the book of Luke. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet and weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Simon the Pharisee. Pharisees in our day get a bad rap. We think of them as arrogant legalists. But if we lived in Jesus' time, we would have respected them. They were paid, uh, or unpaid, they were volunteer elders in their synagogue. They weren't paid religious professionals. They were extremely devoted to every part of the law. They had large portions of the Old Testament memorized. These were seriously committed people. We would have respected them. We would have noticed that they loved the law more than they loved the Lord but we would have respected their tenacity. It was uh, a common for someone like Simon the Pharisee to probably well to do to have a courtyard. And in that day, it was acceptable for anyone in the village. I mean, they were much more communal. Uh, as, uh, they were as communal as we are individual. Uh, this would bother us if people were around our yard listening into our conversations. Not then. Anyone could stop by the courtyard, especially if they had invited this famous traveling rabbi who was causing quite a ruckus in Galilee. And uh, Simon the Pharisee and Jesus reclining, eating, you know, lying down, probably on their left elbow, reaching back on the table with their right, eating, by the way, any kids in the room, next time you want to eat lying down in front of the television or eat on your couch, but your mom says you have to eat at the table, here's what you should do. You should say, Mom, I'm just trying to preserve the biblical tradition. And then let me know how that goes for you. (laughs) Everything common, in a courtyard, neighbors listening in, meal, conversation, until the uncommon. A woman breaks through every social boundary Sits herself down at Jesus' feet, begins weeping brokenness. The, the only time a woman was ever permitted to let her hair down in public in ancient Middle Eastern culture was to express a broken heart. She's weeping, tears on his feet. She has perfume, m- 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 wiping it on his feet, uh, an- anointing his feet with her hair. What a a powerful moment, but most powerful because of the courage of this woman. The the hero of the story is this woman who is unafraid to show her feelings toward the Messiah. Well, what does Simon see? What does Jesus see? Simon sees in verse 39. He's thinking to himself, if he were a prophet, he would know who's touching his feet and what kind of woman she is. Luke's already told us that everyone in town knew she's a sinful woman. Now that phrase, sinful woman, in a patriarchal culture, if it's applied to a man, it probably means the man was a thief, violent, uh, untrustworthy, liar. But if it's applied to a woman, everyone also knew what it meant. It meant she was promiscuous, an adulterer, perhaps a prostitute. Doesn't he know Who's touching his feet? Jesus, in verse 44, asks him, Simon, do you see this woman? Oh yeah, Simon sees her. Simon sees a sinner. What does Jesus see? Jesus sees a woman so courageously desperate that she's willing to break every social boundary that she has been captured and caged in her life by shame and guilt. Jesus sees a woman who all of her adult life has known only one of two things from men, judgment or lust. And everyone in the room feeling that towards this woman, save one man, the man Jesus, who is willing to look beyond her fault and see her need. Now, I want to underline clearly from this picture of Jesus what mercy is and is not. Mercy is not. It's what Jesus does not do. He does not uh, publicly rebuke this woman in front of everyone. He does not avoid a very awkward and embarrassing situation. He does not excuse her sin. In fact, one of the most important things he says to her is, Your sins are forgiven. But what Jesus does do. Is he chooses to see a worshiper and he chooses to accept her perfumed praise and he chooses to publicly announce her forgiveness. He looks beyond her fault to see her need. That's the picture of mercy. So what would it look like for Waterstone to be a community of mercy? Now, I remind you that the Beatitudes are plural. And so in our application today, we're going to direct it to us as a community. But there are some interesting individual applications that you could talk about in your small groups this week, such as, what would it mean to be a friend who is merciful, who overlooks faults in other friends and chooses to see need? What kind of friend would that be? What kind of parent would would it be if you were able to look beyond the faults of your children and see their needs? What kind of parent? What kind of spouse uh Oh, would you be if you could look beyond your spouse's faults to see their needs? What kind of neighbor would you be if you had the ability to look past your neighbor's faults and their political beliefs and their theological beliefs and look past the what they believe and and ask the question, why do you believe it? Oh, now that would be being led by mercy. What kind of individual would you be if you were led by mercy? But we need to talk about us. Because the Beatitudes about us. What does a church of mercy look like? Let me give you some snapshots. Several years ago, a number of us on staff, we went to a leadership summit, and there was a pastor there named John Burke. And John started a church church in Austin, Texas. He started with a small group, and this small group met for two years, and they did research and development on their community in Austin. They also had a lot of anecdotal uh, stories by interviewing people. Their passion as a group was to reach those farthest from God, especially among the younger generation. So uh, the results of all their research led to this. Here is what Austin, Texas, in the community where they wanted to plant Gateway Church, here's what it looked like. One out of every three women will have had an abortion. Nearly two out of every six women will have been sexually molested. Most of the men will have struggled with pornography. Most of the singles will be sexually active. Five out of 10 will live together before marriage. One in seven will abuse drugs or alcohol. Two out of five smoke. And 85% in Austin, at least, will be unchurched. What kind of church could reach that kind of culture? Well, they quickly decided that it would have to be a very different kind of church culture. They called it the come-as-you-are culture. And what they decided to do was to be the kind of church that welcomes everyone to come and sit in their room to hear the Jesus stories, welcome everyone to have food at their own tables in their own homes. It doesn't matter what they looked like. It doesn't matter what they smelled like. It doesn't matter how they lived. They would be welcomed. They wanted a culture that said, you can belong before you believe. That's a very different kind of culture. Well, the church grew. In fact, I checked their website last week. You could check it out, Gateway Church, Austin, Texas, John Burke, it's going amazing. On their first Sunday as a formal church, years after the small group decided to start having services, their first service, they decided that their vision would be this. No perfect people allowed. Could that be us? Snapshot number two. I pastored a church in New England for five years, Osterville Baptist. And uh, we had a guy in that church that made some very poor choices, got in trouble with the law, became a registered sex offender. He wanted, after working through much of the legal process, to begin attending services. So uh, another elder and myself sat down with him and his parole officer, and by the way, we do this every year at Waterstone, too. So, just so you know. Our concern is to protect our children, to protect the offender, and to protect the church. And so we work out these safety plans in minute detail. So we, we worked this all out. We were getting ready to leave, shaking hands with the parole officer, and the parole officer held onto my hand for an extra second, and he said, is your church ready? To receive a convict? Now, the question caught me off guard. Uh, The elder said immediately, Of course, we're ready to receive a conflict. We will receive him just like we received Jesus, because you know Jesus was a convicted felon. (laughs) Of course. We're ready to receive a convict. Could that be us? Snapshot number three. A painting, actually. Imagine you're walking along, and you trip, and, and you stumble across a Rembrandt. And you pick it up. It's the Night Watch. Arguably Rembrandt's most famous painting. But it's covered in mud. Ah! what would you focus on? Would you focus on the Rembrandt or would you focus on the mud? You'd focus on the Rembrandt. You have a masterpiece of inestimable worth. But you'd still need to deal with the mud. You would need to find someone who is an expert in cleaning mud off a painting without damaging it. So would you read this together with me because this is what mercy means. Together, everyone is welcome. Mercy means you can belong before you believe. Mercy means we look beyond people's faults and see their need. Mercy means we focus on the masterpiece, not the mud. Sooner or later, we have to deal with the mud. Lust, envy, lying, and gossip fall far short of all that God has in mind. They lead to hurt, and heartache, but there's only one person who can deal with that mud, Jesus. A story about mercy, because now we want to ask the question, how do we become that kind of community? How does mercy flow from our hearts? You know, it's in the beatitude. The simple answer is, how do we become a community of mercy? We believe the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Wait a minute, does that mean if we don't show mercy, God's not gonna show mercy on us? Not exactly. What it means is that we all need mercy. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just as the woman walked into the courtyard with her bags of sin, we have walked into this room this morning with ours. Just as the first time we met Jesus, we were covered in mud. What did Jesus do? He looked beyond our fault to see our need. When we understand what we've done, and then we understand what Jesus has done with what we've done our hearts bust open with mercy. Mercy. Here's a story about how it works. This is by a great book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Uh, Rebecca Pippert. Several years ago, after I had finished speaking at a conference, a lovely woman came to the platform. She obviously wanted to speak to me, and the moment I turned to her, tears welled up in her eyes. We made our way to a room where we could talk privately. It was clear from looking at her that she was sensitive but tortured. She sobbed as she told me the following story. Years before, she and her fiance, to whom she was now married, had been the youth workers at a large conservative church. They were a well known couple and had an extraordinary impact on the young people. Everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously. A few months before they were to be married, they began having sexual relations. That left them burdened enough with a sense of guilt and hypocrisy. But then she discovered she was pregnant. You can't imagine what the implications would have been of admitting this to our church, she said. To confess that we were preaching one thing and living another would have been intolerable. The congregation was so conservative and had never been touched by any scandal. We felt they wouldn't be able to handle knowing about our situation, nor could we bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision I have ever made. I had an abortion. My wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride beaming in innocence. But do you know what was going through my head as I walked down that aisle? All I could think to myself was, you were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. Now, I just want to pause here and say that even in this room, there are different opinions and values about abortion. However, I would guess that most all of us would agree that having an abortion simply because of pride, simply to be thought well of, is a less than ideal reason to have an abortion. By this time she was sobbing so deeply that she could not speak. As I put my arms around her, a thought came to me very strongly, but I was afraid to say it. I knew if it was not from God that it would be very destructive, so I prayed silently for wisdom to help her. She continued, I just can't believe that I could do something like this. How could I have taken an innocent life? How is it possible I could do such a thing? I love my husband. We have four beautiful children. I know what the Bible says and that God forgives all our sins, but I can't forgive myself. I've confessed this sin a thousand times, and I still feel such shame and sorrow the thought that haunts me the most is how could I take an innocent life? I took a deep breath and said what I had been thinking. I said, I don't know why you are so surprised. This isn't the first time your sin has led to a death. It's the second. She looked at me. In utter amazement, my dear friend, I continued, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers, religious or non-religious, good or bad, abortors or non-aborters, all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent who has ever lived. Jesus died for all our sins, past present, and future. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't have to die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It doesn't matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. Luther said that we carry the very nails in our pockets. So if you have done it before, then why couldn't you do it again? She stopped crying. She looked straight in the eyes. You're absolutely right. I have done something even worse than killing my baby. My sin is what drove Jesus to the cross. It doesn't matter that I wasn't there pounding in the nails. I'm responsible for his death. Do you realize the significance of what you're telling me, Becky? I came to you saying I had done the worst thing imaginable. And you tell me I have done something even worse than that. I grimaced because I knew this was true. I am not sure my approach would qualify as a great counseling technique. Then she said, Becky... But if the cross shows me that I am far worse than I imagined, it also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human can do is kill God's son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else even my abortion not be forgiven. We have a God of amazing mercy who forgives us even for killing his son. Mercy. Mercy mercy and now we come to the table of mercy i invite our servers for communion to go and prepare there'll be stations around the room as today we celebrate the lord's supper i want you to know that today this is the table of mercy i believe some of you here have been holding on to past sins whatever they are a sin that you just can't forgive yourself, Uh, a, a mistake that you've made that just influences your heart and your mind, your thoughts every day. I want you today to come to the table of mercy and hear again Jesus say to you, the risen Jesus, who's take all your sins to the cross, hear him say to you, you are forgiven. So in your time and when you're ready, leave your seat, go to a station gluten-free in the back center, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, you can take it back to your seat or anywhere in the room, and hear Jesus speak words of forgiveness into your heart. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he said, this represents my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood. The new covenant of forgiveness poured out to forgive your sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim Christ and his coming to the end of the age.